Well, good morning, Lakeside. Happy uh, Super Bowl Sunday. Any, uh, can't see very well with the lights up here in the first service, no one. Is there any fellow Eagles fans out here? Oh, one, where? Oh, right there, all right. Free donut holes for you today. On me. Oh, praise the Lord. This is our 18th uh, year of doing uh, Jersey Sunday on the Super Bowl. And uh, uh, we're, we're thankful for the fact that the Lord uh, loves his people to have some joy in their life. Amen. But if there was ever a Sunday, ever a passage of scripture where you would cancel a Jersey Sunday, it would be the portion of scripture that we're going to, that I'm going to be reading here in just a second where Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, uh, certainly, we, we enjoy life at uh, Lakeside, uh, but we take the gospel very seriously, and uh, we're going to mix the two today. So we're in a series called Good News in a Bad News World, and uh, we've been in the series for over a year, and, and obviously we're in John chapter 18 today, and if you have your Bibles, if you would turn there. So I want you to envision a, a, a swelling wave coming. And in John's gospel, uh, the cross is like a swelling wave that's been coming through the chapters. And we're going to be in the garden uh, uh, today and then, the, and then the cross in the next few uh, uh, Sundays. And it's the hour of uh, Christ's sacrifice and his suffering. It's It's the hour. Um, the hour was first mentioned in the Gospel of John all the way back in John chapter 2, uh, where Jesus was at the wedding of Cana, and he's asked by his uh, uh, mama to change the water into wine, and he said a number of things, but one of the things, the first time he said that's recorded for us is, uh, it is not yet my hour. That was John chapter 2. Well, in John chapter 18, it's his hour. And uh, let me read the first 12 verses of uh, John uh, chapter 2, and I want you to think, and we're going to talk about the sovereignty of God in the arrest of Christ, the arrest of the sovereign uh, God. And so let me uh, read uh, the first 12 verses, and, uh, and then we'll pray and dive in before our baptism testimonies. When Jesus had spoken these words, the words of John 17, the words he spoke to his father in prayer. He went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Verse 3, so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all uh, that would happen to him, knowing it all, came forward, initiated, and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I'm he. Uh, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Not the disciples, with the soldiers and the chief priests and the officers and whoever else was there. Verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I'm he, they drew back and they fell to the ground uh, like a bunch of turtles on their back. Uh, I can envision Jesus reaching down to help them up. If God didn't want them to get, get up, they would still be laying there. Uh, and so they fell to the ground. So in verse 7, so he asked them again, whom do you seek? 
And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I would have come up with a different answer there. Uh, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken in John 17. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, uh, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Melchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Today I want you to see the sovereignty of God in the arrest of Jesus. Uh, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we just we come to you again. Uh, the songs that we sing, the testimonies that will be given in a little bit, public testimonies of your grace and mercy and salvation in other, others' lives. We thank you for that. Uh, Lord, you, you, you know the group that's gathered here this morning. Uh, you know what each one of us is going on in each of our lives. Uh, Lord, I, I just know as the pastor, I don't, I don't know much, but I know there's some broken hearts here today. I know there's some valley experiences. Some are on mountaintops and some aren't. Only you, Lord, through the arrest of your son and the crucifixion of your son could give us an encouraging word about your control in all of life. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that here this morning. In Christ's precious name, amen. Now, I'm going to mention the sovereignty of God a number of times in this account of Jesus in the garden. And so I just want to make sure, um, if I get this to go here, I want you to make sure that we're all on the same page when you see this uh, seminary word or whatever, the sovereignty of God. Here, here's what I think scripture means. I, I cobbled together a, a definition uh, sovereignty of God means that God has total control of all things past, present, and future. Nothing happens that is out of his knowledge and control. So, so factor your own life into this right now. All things are either caused by him or allowed by him for his purposes. He, he's in control of it all. He's, he's the conductor of the orchestra. Uh, for those things that are hard in our life and those things that are good in our life. Scripture speaks, speaks very clearly about this. And if we ever needed to see the sovereignty of God, the control of God, we need to see it as Jesus, God himself, is being arrested and as he goes to the cross. If he's not sovereign there, he's not sovereign anywhere, amen? If he's in control of evil, as we're going to see, and he's in control of death, uh, then if you know him, you are invincible, amen? If, if you don't know him and you're on the opposite side, uh, then, then, then you're, in, you're in deep trouble. And God is saying, no, I want you to come on over, come on over to my, my side. Now, John was an eyewitness of the things he's writing about. He does not mention that he's one of three that get invited into the inner circle, into the deepest part of the Garden of Gethsemane. He, he doesn't mention that because John's not going to highlight himself. 
But it's very interesting that of the four accounts of the Garden of Gethsemane, John, who was an eyewitness, he was at the he was he was there with Jesus all, all along. He gives us the shortest account of Jesus' time in the garden. And we should ask ourselves, why would that be? Well, it's interesting to note what John does not include in his account. So in John's 12 verses about the garden, he doesn't mention the name Gethsemane. He just says garden. He doesn't mention the kiss of Judas. He doesn't mention the threefold prayer of Christ. He doesn't mention Jesus saying, not my will, but thine be done. There's no agony in the garden. There's no bloody sweat in the garden. There's no angels coming to strengthen him. And we should ask ourselves, why wouldn't John, if he was there, why wouldn't he share those details? The other gospel writers fill those in. Why, why wouldn't he do that? And I think there's a really good and simple reason why John doesn't do that. It, it's, it goes back to the purpose for which John is writing. We don't have to wonder about John's purpose. Here's what John wrote. Now, Jesus in John chapter 20, did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. You can go to Matthew, Mark, and Luke and fill in details that John's not going to include. But these are written, the things that John writes, uh, these are written so that you say the gold with me, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have his life in his name. John was all about showing that Christ was the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. And he's full of majesty and he's full of glory and he's in control in every step of the way. So in the garden, you don't get to see so much the humanity of Christ as you get to see the deity of Christ and the supremacy of Christ and the sovereignty of Christ on display. John wants us to see the supremacy and the sovereignty of Jesus in his arrest and crucifixion. That's what he wants us to see. And, and there should be some soothing balm in knowing that Christ is in control of his very arrest and death. Now, let me just give you an example. So I mentioned the things that John doesn't mention in his gospel. There's one thing that he mentions that none of the other gospel writers mention. John alone mentions that when Jesus says, I am he, all the soldiers fall on their back. Now, why would John include that? Not inc because he wants you to see the mat. Jesus says his name. He speaks the word. People fall backward. Amen. As I was thinking about this, I was like trying to remember the time where the, the word of Christ and the gospel so just kind of had me step back and fall down and worship him. So here's how we're just going to break this off in the time that I have. John wants us to see Jesus is in total control of the place. Jesus is in total control of the people. And Jesus is in total control of the plan. Pretty simple outline. And I pray that you would take wherever you're at in life and you would factor in the sovereignty of God and you would go away here clinging to Christ more than you ever have in your life. So number one, Jesus is in control of the place. Look at John chapter 18 and verse one. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden, where there was a garden. 
And so we have a little uh, video here. Uh, there was a little video there. I guess it's not there uh, right now. So it's, we'll, we'll, we'll get it. We'll get it back. Um, I had an error in the first uh, PowerPoint, so I had to redo the PowerPoint. I didn't put the video in there. So if the, if you saw the video, the video would take you from Jerusalem uh, to the to the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, and it would walk you down through uh, the the uh, uh, side of Jerusalem, south side of Jerusalem, out Stephen's Gate, across down about a 200 foot slope, across the Brook Kidron, up the side of the Mount of Olives. Uh, there it is. Okay, good job. Let's give them a hand back there. They don't always get a hand back there. And on the side of the Mount of Olives is the Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, so, so what I want to do is take a couple moments and show you how Christ is in control of the place. Christ is in control of the place. So it says the Brook Kidron. So there's this little brook that divides the city of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. Like I said, it's about 200 foot down. Uh, my wife and I, if you go to Israel, you can, you can kind of walk, walk across uh, that little brook. And I want you to think of Jesus walking across this little brook as he's uh, heading to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to get arrested. Certainly Jesus would have remembered the incident when King David was betrayed by a trusted friend. If you went to 2 Samuel 15, you'd have the story of his son Absalom, who's going to betray him. And he recruits David's number one friend and advisor, Ahithophel. And together they join and they're going to betray King David. He gets word. So David takes off, King David takes off out of the city of Jerusalem, and it says in 2 Samuel 15 that he crosses the brook Kidron with tears in his eyes, and he goes to a place of safety on the other side. And once the betrayal is thwarted, it doesn't actually happen, Ohithophel, his trusted friend and advisor who had betrayed him, hangs himself, eerily similar to Judas. And But even more pertinent, and even for me more penetrating, uh, when Jesus would have crossed the little brook Kidron, which uh, isn't as, uh, you know, maybe when, I, when we went across it, maybe as wide as this, uh, as the baptismal tank here, not very wide at all. It was in the middle of Passover. And historians say that in the two days of Passover, the main two days of Passover, up to a couple hundred thousand lambs were slain. And basically what they would do is they would have a conduit. They would have a, a drain that would flow the blood uh, of the lambs before they would sacrifice. This little conduit would come out underneath the floor of the temple and there would be a little conduit and the blood would flow into the Brook Kidron. And the Brook Kidron during the Passover would swell because of the blood of the lamb. And of course, Christ is crossing in the middle of Passover, this little brook Kidron, uh, maybe he could jump over it without getting his feet in the uh, blood swollen uh, little stream that's going there. But certainly, this would have been on his mind, uh, the very verses that radically changed my life. Let me read the writer of Hebrews. He said, every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, say it with me in gold, which can never take away sins. 
But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, that's where he's headed when he crosses the brook Hedron. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Read verse 14 with me. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Can you imagine the sovereign Savior walking across the brook Kidron swollen because of the blood of the, of the lambs that can never take away sins on his way to the cross? Can you imagine the mindset of Christ? And then if you look at verse 1, it says the brook Kidron where there was a garden. And I mentioned uh, John doesn't mention the word Gethsemane. It's in the other gospel accounts. And Gethsemane means oil press or to be crushed. Uh, that's a fitting name. But John doesn't mention it here. And we should just take a moment and just ask ourselves, why did Jesus go to the garden? Everything he does is orchestrated, pre-planned, and intentional. Why does he go to uh, why does he go to the garden? By the way, when, I was, uh, when my wife and I were over Israel, I snapped this picture. It's, it's beautiful in the daytime, at least now. They got, it, uh, they got a nice little path in there. And, and when you go to Israel, our, our tour got one hour uh, in the garden. There's 40 of us. And go find an olive tree to lean up against. And they're not sure if any of the olive trees date back to the time of Jesus, but very close for sure. There are some that are 15 to 1,800 years old for sure. And you, you said one of the most sober times of my entire life was that hour sitting beside an olive tree in the Garden of Gethsemane. Why did Jesus go to the garden? Well, I mean, there could be a number of reasons. Uh, that was always the place he went to pray. It would be the place he would go to get rest. It would be the place to go to get fellowship with his disciples all alone. It would be a place to, to get rid of, uh, to, to, to not be around the, 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 the crowds. And Luke writes about this. Uh, Luke 21, uh, every day, so this is the last week uh, before the cross, every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. Well, that's instructive. A chapter later, Luke says, and he came out and went, and as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. So, so certainly this was his custom. This, this, was a, this, this was a safe place for him, but he knows everything. He, he knows everything. Why would, he, why would he go there? And then this kind of follows along. Well, it was kind of like home to him. This is a very sobering verse, couple of verses to me, because it talks about the disciples and God had been, Christ had been doing some things. And just, just notice the loneliness of Christ right here. The disciples, they each went to his own house. The disciples went home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Uh, scripture, Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man, he has nowhere to lay his head. Uh, but the Mount of Olives was like home to him. But, it, but are you going to do the familiar thing when you know you're going to get arrested? And here's what I would like to say in the sovereignty of God. He chose the garden because he knew Judas would go there. That's what, he's in total control. Judas thinks he's trapping Jesus. No, 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 no. Jesus is trapping Judas. You got, you got to get it right. Look at uh, verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. 
A coward would have gone anywhere but the Garden of Gethsemane. You would have changed the way you would normally do business. No, 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 no. Because the time had come, Jesus said in John chapter 10, for him to lay down his life. John 10, verse 17, 18. Nobody takes my life, Jesus said. I lay it down. Judas didn't arrest him. He, he provoked the arrest. He walked into it. Jesus looks like he's being hunted and trapped, but he's actually the one laying the ambush. He is in total control of the place. Number two, he's in contr total control of the people. Got to move a little bit quicker here, but I just, I just want you to see. Let me start reading at verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, uh, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Uh, so, so there's a whole group of people. Let's just spend a moment on each one of these. Judas. We all know a lot about Judas. Um, he, he was chosen by Christ to follow him three years earlier. Uh, he hung with Jesus wherever Jesus went, he went. He ate the same food as the disciples. He heard the same teaching. He saw the same miracles. Uh, they, 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 they slept in the same area. And yet Judas was, could we say, trusted. He was the treasurer. And yet he was a thief. And he was a traitor. He betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Let me just step back just for a second for us. Judas teaches us many things, many things, but he certainly teaches us right here that the Christian faith does not rub off. It's not genetically passed from mom and dad to son and daughter. You can, you can be raised in the most perfect environment. You could live with Jesus for three years in your life and still betray him. Do you see what, do you see what this is saying? Unless there's personal repentance and unless there's personal belief in the finished work of Christ, the best environment in the world will only serve to judge you in the end. Real belief doesn't rub off. Now, we, we should have an aroma and we should create a culture, but each person has to come individually. Now, Judas brought many others, it says in verse 3, a band of soldiers, that's the word for cohort. That would be a tenth of a Roman legion. That would be 600. In, in history, sometimes they use the word to uh, a third of a cohort, which would be 200. Let's just go with the conservative and say, say 200 here. And some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. Matthew said Judas came with a great multitude. I, I'm going I'm to say, let's say 500. Well, why did they bring 500? Well, I mean, they had heard about Jesus. The Roman soldiers who were overlooking the temple, always with suspicion, uh, must have saw Jesus a couple days earlier go in there single-handedly, throw, uh, throw up the tables and drive out the moneylenders. Nobody stopped him. The soldier didn't step in. So they were armed for bear with lanterns and torches and weapons. I wrote for myself how tragic for Judas to exchange the eternal light of Christ for a handmade torch. Wrong decision. Let me read verses 4 through 9. Then Jesus, knowing that all would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. 
Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them, again with the soldiers. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, now whom do you seek? They are idiots because they give the same answer. And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you I am he, so if you seek me, let these go. He's initiating contact. In the, I want you to see the sovereignty of God. If you put all of the gospel accounts together, Jesus speaks first. He walks towards them. He goes forward towards them. He initiates contact. And the very first thing, when you put all of the accounts together, before Judas got to do his thing, he says to Judas as he sees him, are you going to betray the son of God with a kiss? It just ruled what uh, Judas was going to do irrelevant. I mean, he still went ahead and kissed him, but it was like, oh man, you stole my thunder, Jesus. Well, yeah, because he, he's in, total, he's in total, total control. He says three times, I am he. In the original language, the word he is not there. This is the, na the divine name that God gave Moses at the burning bush. Who do I say sent me? Say, I am sent you. It's the unmistakable use of the divine name given to Moses at the burning bush. When he said, I am, people fell backwards down to the ground. John chapter 6, I'm the bread of life. John chapter 8, I'm the light of the world. John chapter 10, I'm the door of the sheep. John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. John chapter 11, I'm the resurrection and the life. John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John chapter 15, I am the true vine. He is the I am, amen? They fell to the ground, and I want you to look at verse 5. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed them, was standing with them. They fell to the ground, and Judas went down too. Wouldn't right there, you come to your sense and say, I'm switching sides? This shows the coldness of unbelief. Now, Simon Peter's mentioned in our account. And uh, the only time that they use the, both names for Simon Peter is when he's going to act independently of God. So he's Simon Peter. He's going to take things under control. But I want you to see that when, the, when all the soldiers fell to the ground, it was a remarkable fulfillment of prophecy. Psalm 27 would be a great psalm. If you're struggling in life or, or you anticipate something coming or, or you, you want some scriptures to come to you, maybe the pastor can't get there with a, a verse or a portion of scripture or a prayer for you, uh, uh, spiritually counsel yourself. Memorize Psalm 27. Let me just give you the first two verses relating to the soldiers falling back. This is a psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes say it with me. It is they who stumble and fall. It's not the sovereign God. Psalm 2 um, the psalmist writes, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? That, this is for today. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's the word for Messiah saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Like, let's get rid of them. Say verse four with me. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. All the chaos that's going on today, it's not even enough to get the Lord to stand up. He's just going to take care of it sitting down. 
He is the sovereign God. He's laughing at this world. No, it's not. It's serious stuff. But he is in, he is in control. Mel, uh, Simon Peter lops off an ear. Uh, this is the first recorded case of concealed carry right here. I don't know what he's doing with the sword. I don't think, you know, Jesus would have known he had the sword. But Malchus in verse 10, he's named. Uh, it's the only time his name is mentioned in scripture. Uh, it says that he, he was the, the servant or the slave of the high priest. He gets his ear cut off. And uh, I, I don't know. I'm trying to think, well, why did Peter go for him? Well, maybe he's the first person in the history uh, of, of mankind to ever lay an abusive hand on Christ. Maybe he's the one that grabbed him. Anyways, he got to, he's, he's fortunate that Jesus was in the area. Nobody ever died in the presence of Christ. So uh, in his sovereign uh, hand and his sovereign power and his sovereign grace, he heals uh, Melchus, that would get me uh, far enough along to go to the other side. I don't know about you. Uh, he says, if you seek me, uh, let these men go. The Romans, so that's actually a command. The word let shouldn't even be in there. If you seek me, uh, these men go. It was a command. Roman soldiers trained to take uh, orders from Roman superiors only, obey the voice of the captive. Jesus is in total control of people. And I'll just close with Jesus is in total control of the plan. Now we study the scriptures and we read the scriptures to be moved by the heart of Christ, but also to learn for our life that Jesus wants us to see that he's sovereign in your life and my life. If he's sovereign here, he's sovereign now. Jesus is in total control of the plan. Verse 11 so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Shall I not drink it? Perfect sovereignty, per perfect submission. He has a plan. He's going to go with the plan. What Jesus must do, he must do alone. Any number of prophecies I could go to right here. I'm just going to give you one of the ones that I, uh, that I have listed. The Lord God has opened my ear. So Isaiah 50 verses 5 and 6. Hundreds of years before Christ. And I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pulled out the beard. This is Isaiah 50 verse 5 and 6. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. He intentionally walked. He forced the contact, contact. Peter would say after he saw the resurrected Christ, and he wasn't, wasn't a big weenie anymore. Peter got up there and, and he's, uh, he's preaching. And he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, now notice the sovereignty of God. Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified, you're still responsible, and you killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible uh, for him to be held by it. This is the gospel. It's the good news in a bad news world. Jesus came willingly, knowingly, uh, on our behalf, substitutionally and individually. He, he was the only one. If we collectively took all of our goodness 
and, and we embellished it just a little bit and we wrote it on paper. We wouldn't even come close to being qualified for the cross. Jesus was, amen? We're thankful. Not a helpless victim, a sovereign savior. And you and I should be encouraged by this.